Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Thank you. That's my wife. Guys, clap. Come on. Kelly can't stand attention, so that was just like a nightmare for her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God. Um, As as, uh, we open up your word and we read through this text, boy, everything that's ever gone wrong in our lives could be rooted, brought back to these seven verses. Everything we've done to mess up our lives could be brought back to these verses here. And so as we approach this, God, there's, there's so much symbolism and metaphor. It's, it's rich with meaning. Um, I pray that you would just make, make it clear in our minds what you intend to say to us today, God. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, the sermon today is called Three Lies and a Truth. It's kind of like the game although I think it's two truths and a lie, but it doesn't matter. Uh, So far, we've been reading through Genesis, and so far, we've been talking through this beautiful story of creation. Uh, and And it really is, I mean, for two chapters, it's been this incredible song. And actually, um, as, as you read through the original language, by the way, I don't know the original language, but dudes who read, who write books that I read know the original language. So as it said, as they say, that word spoke, um, you know, when we read that word in our English language, that sounds like a transfer of information. It sounds kind of rigid, but uh, in the original language, that word spoke is actually more like sing, which I love that. Like at the core of creation is God singing. This is, this is God's song of created order. And so for, for two chapters, 55 verses, we've been listening to this beautiful song of God making everything. And as we talked about last week, the crescendo, the, the, like, the peak of the song, his magnus opus, to switch metaphors, is image bearers, is Adam and Eve. Out of all his created order, he assigns them image-bearing qualities to be like God, or the Latin phrase, imago Dei. And in uh, my second point, we'll get into detail about what that means. And so as you immerse yourself, if you guys read through those two chapters over and over and over again, you get a sense of this beauty which is what makes 
these first three words in chapter three so hard to read because you turn the page and it says, now the serpent. And you're like, no, 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 not yet. I'm, I'm not ready for it. Like this, is, this has been a beautiful story. And as you look at your Bible, it's like this is two chapters of like this amazing story. And then everything after that comes after now the serpent. And we know what that means. We know what comes with it. It's like all of the problems we've ever experienced in the world, all of the issues that we find in our own heart, all of the ways that we seek after our own good over others, all of the ways that we turn from God towards our own selves, all of the problems we have ever experienced or created starts with those words, now the serpent Man, can you like, can you feel like the cloud of darkness just start to roll in on this story? And as a recap, God has created this beautiful garden. He's put two trees in it, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And somebody might be like, man, like why, why did God have to put that there? Like, couldn't he have just like moved that somewhere else? Then none of this stuff would have happened. And Ultimately, we don't really have a direct answer to that, but I do think that it's really important to understand that God interacts with us through a series of covenants. And it helps to understand the role of this tree of good and evil in the context of the first covenant that he makes with Adam. And that is a covenant of obedience. He has given Adam this beautiful paradise, this garden. And he is like, you are the king of it, Adam. Here's this wife. She's naked. Have fun. All of it's good. There's only one thing. There's only one thing I need from you. And that's to obey me the covenant of obedience. If you obey me, paradise is yours, Adam. That is where we get the covenant of obedience. And of course, Adam fails in this covenant. He does not obey God. The serpent shows up seemingly out of nowhere in the text that we're reading later on. In God's word, we learn more about this serpent, but for now, he's just kind of pops onto the scene. He goes to Eve. He convince, convinces her to eat of the apple, and then Eve takes that apple to her husband, subverting the relationship that they have with one another, which is something we talked about last week, and then Adam takes and eats. And as I pray, there's, there's so much imagery here but we're going to break it up like this. We're going to break it up as three lies and a truth. And the first lie that we're going to look at is this. God is not good. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? That phrase, did God really say, 
when I first read it, and honestly, like well-meaning pastors, I think originally taught it to me as like the serpent was like trying to question the accuracy of the words of God or the memory that Eve had about what God had said. But again, in the original language, what we actually discover is that it's not so much the serpent is questioning what Eve remembered, rather the serpent is mocking God. He's kind of like going, oh, is that what God told you? Oh, is that what he said, to not eat of this thing? You see, there's like this implied intent. Like, God's not after for your, your good. He's not for you in this. He's holding something back from you. God can't be trusted. <laughs> is that what he told you? He belittles the word of God, and in so doing, he belittles God's character. And that's the thing about the devil, is that he doesn't start by going after the existence of God, but on the goodness of God. Like anybody who's ever turned away from the Lord if you have friends who are not walking with God, if they wouldn't categorize themselves as a Christian anymore, if you ever wonder like what that process looks like, nobody, or I should say rarely, does somebody just wake up one morning and be like, I don't think God exists anymore, and therefore I'm making this new choice in my life. Instead, it starts in our heart of hearts of questioning the goodness of God. Like, if I continue to obey him, he's, he's going to keep me down. He's going to suppress my joy. I'm going to miss out on life. I'm not going to be happy. He's going to keep me from being who I want to be. It starts in subtle ways. It starts with our pleasure. Man, I know I shouldn't do that thing, but I really want to. Did God really say he's my true source of joy? What about this instant gratification? It starts with the way we look at forgiveness. Man, I know that God calls me to forgive that person because God is both just and justify her, but I cannot forgive them until I see my outcome. I put myself in the place of God. It starts with our comfort. I know God is my one comfort and my one protector, but man, I don't feel safe. And because I don't see, feel safe, I don't see how God is going to provide for me. And so I'm going to work tirelessly, save anxiously to make sure that I keep myself safe. It starts with our pride. I know God said that his strength will be shown in my weakness, but I cannot be a failure. That would be an embarrassment. And therefore, I can't show weakness. You see, these subtle ways are the ways that that lie starts just planning in our hearts and we start turning from God and we start turning towards our own selves as the solution to those fears, those uncertainties, those insecurities. And the thing is, is that God, when he, when he calls us to trust him, it's not a blind trust. It's a relational trust. Like all Adam had to do was look around. He's in the garden. 
you know? The evidence of the goodness of God was all around him, but he got fixated on this lie. The serpent was introducing a new idea. Wouldn't it be better for you to be God yourself? And that's what we do. We put ourselves in the place of God because we don't trust him in these areas. The first lie that is planted deep into the heart of every single person is this. God is not good. And so we make gods of ourselves. You know, I was, I was praying. I, when, I, when I add these, when I do these sermons, I, I pray through each one of these points. And uh, when it came to this one, I was praying through it. And there was a moment in my prayer where I was like, the Lord just revealed to me, there's areas in my life where I don't think he's good. And so I just offered up a really honest prayer. I was just like a confession, God, I don't trust you. That's, that's what that confession sounded like in that moment. I don't, I don't trust you in this area of my life, Lord. Help, help me. I invite you to search your own hearts. What areas of your life have you come to not trust God? What areas of your life are you thinking that you have control, that you need to kind of pull back the reins a little bit because you don't feel safe, because you don't feel comfortable, because you don't feel like you understand what God is trying to do there? I'd invite you to pray, pray through that, to confess that to the Lord and to one another. The second lie is uh, based in our identity. The first lie has everything to do with what we believe about God. And the second lie has everything to do with what we believe about ourselves. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God? Isn't that an interesting thing to say to her? One, two things. One, he's the serpent. He's not the creator. He promises to Eve something he cannot deliver. He is not her creator. But the second thing, do you realize that he offers something to Eve that she already had? She's an image bearer of God. She's not God-like, but she is made in God's image. You can argue that she, Adam and Eve, were both more like God than anybody post-fall of all of creation. And so the serpent is offering something that she already possessed. She was an image bearer of God, imago Dei. And let me describe that for a minute. Give me, give me about two minutes to be like nerdy theology guy for a second here, because I think this is really important. Often when you hear people talk about being image bearers of God, they'll, they'll say to you that we share certain attributes with God. And so they, they create two categories. God has communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. A communicable attribute are the things that we share with God. God is loving, God is kind, God is a creator. You and I can have the capacity to love, we have the capacity to be kind, we have the capacity to create. 
God also has these incommunicable attributes. God is omnipresent, omniscient, self-existing. Those are aspects of God that we will never share with him. And so what, what pastors, well-meaning pastors do to kind of quickly describe what it means to be an image bearer of God is they'll say, see, it's just simply the reality that we share in these certain communicable attributes. And that's part of it, but it's also not the whole picture. Because there's another aspect here in that God has created us unique in that we can see God and bring glory to his name by expressing it into the world. And on top of that, we can also look into God's created order, find truth, beauty, and goodness, and then worship God because of it. And so in that sense, we're kind of like mirrors. When pointed in the right direction, we can reflect the glory of God into the world and reflect God's glory from his creation back to, his, to him. And then, again, even saying that is not quite enough. And so one more example or metaphor, which is this. To be an image bearer of God is also to be a child of God. You see, children, I know I've, I've explained it like this before, children, when they're really little, like one or two years old, there is no one else in the world that they adore, that they admire than their own parents. Parents are the heroes of, of a little one and two-year-old kid's life. And so what happens is the first attributes, the first dispositions, the first habits all start by reflecting the people we admire and adore most in our lives. We are like our parents. To be an image bearer of God means that we have the capacity to adore our creator and to become more like our creator. This is what it means to be an image bearer of God. This is what God created us to do. And unfortunately, we've bought the lie that we can create our own identity, that we can assign to ourselves value and worth and dignity outside of who God says we are. And Charles Taylor in his book, A Secular Age, and then uh, Yasha Monk in his book, The Identity Trap, they lay out two different kind of lies that are out there in this world. The first is this traditional view of who you are of where you find your value and worth. The traditional view is to look out, to look around, to find your identity and worth. So you look to your nation, uh, you, you look to your religion, and then you find your role that you play within the context of your tribe. And your identity and your worth is the, the participation that you have within that tribe. And so, you sacrifice your own personal feelings for the agenda to serve your nation or tribe. The problem here, think about politics, like if that's our nation or tribe. The problem here is that we will end up in a crisis. What happens when our tribe begins to slide morally will be in a place of conflict where we'll either have to make excuse for or adjust our own morals so that we don't become compromised, so that we don't get excommunicated. This is a traditional view of identity. A modern view of identity is this. 
and this is like we all, we've all heard this in every single Disney song over the last 10 years. It is to look inside yourself, to find out who you truly are, and then to express the authentic self out and to demand the world to agree with you. You be you. Nobody can tell you otherwise. And a part of discovering your authentic self is to buck off the responsibility or the authority that others try to have on telling you who you're supposed to be. And of course, the crisis with the modern self is this. And actually, Charles Taylor points this out. He said that what would end up happening is that we would all have a low view of our own identities, that our primary identity would come from politics, sexuality, and consumerism. Does not that not sound like America? Our primary identities, we divide over those things. We find our own people over those things. And the problem that Taylor said was that this is such a low view of identity that issues like depression and anxiety and uh, divisiveness would continue to increase because of these new identities. And I mean, think about that. There are so many kids who are being told, like, look inside your heart, discover who you are, and then you be you. But what happens when kids look inside their heart and they're like, I'm worthless. I'm a nobody. I'm a failure. I'm a hypocrite. We're left in this crisis because I'm the one that's assigning authority and value and worth in my own life. And I look inside, nobody knows how broken our own hearts are more than ourselves. Here's the good news, though, is that God created us not to look in, not to look around, but to look up. This is good news. Because this means you don't have the weight of determining your own value and worth in this world. This means God has already given you value and worth, and it is so much greater than anything that you could ever assign to your own selves. The third lie, and the final lie is this, it is that we need to save ourselves. That we are the answer to our own problems when in fact we are the problem to our problems. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I was interested, interested. These are like the nerdy moments where like I wake Kelly up at 11 o'clock at night and I'm like, did you know? The word naked here is actually a pun. It's a play on words. Like this is all kind of poetry, it's music. And this word naked is a is a pun, a play on words with, with the same word that was used to describe the serpent, which was crafty. In other words, the poet warrior Moses is telling us we are going from being like God to being like the serpent by believing in these eyes, lies. And what happens is that Adam and Eve's eyes are open and they are awakened. They knew good and now they know good and evil and they see their shame. They see their nakedness. They see that they have a need and then they go and try to fulfill it. They sow fig leaves, which is like so stupid. It's so pathetic. You go from this garden of no shame to like sowing fig leaves for one another and hiding in the bushes. This is like, it all just starts to deteriorate so fast. Here's what this means. We all have a problem, and that is that we're all sinners. The, the, the guy who turns his back on God is in need of grace. 
but so is the moralist. So is the religious person. The one who lives a good life also is in need of grace because you cannot cover your own shame. And the religious moralist covers up their shame when they say things like, I really need to get my life together. I really need to surrender. I really need to commit. I really need to clean up my life and make myself right because then God will bless me. Then God will give me a good life. Then God will give me the marriage I want. Then God will give me obedient children. Then I will get out of my get, get my get out of hell free card. If I do these good things, I will earn favor with the Lord and then he will owe me. I can expect this blessing from him. Our, our good deeds, ultimately, if that's what's motivating them, our good deeds is just another way of playing at God, of not trusting in his goodness, of taking matters into our own hands. You see, we need to repent, not only of the bad things that we do, but of the reasons we do the good things we do. There's this old confession called the Belgian Confession written in the 17th century, and it goes like this, part of it. Far from making people cold towards living in a holy way, justifying faith so works within them that apart from it, here it is, pay attention, they will never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of love for themselves and fear of being condemned. Oh, it's like this dude knows my heart. You know what it's like um, when our kids were really little, they, they, like, they loved making us breakfast in bed. There's actually, if you've been around the Navarro household before, you've heard the story when uh, Levi tried serving Kelly uh, poop milk. Uh, basically, we had, at our first home, we had an issue with rats. And Levi was like, oh, I want to serve mom milk and make her breakfast in bed. And so like he, you know, makes runny eggs and, and then like pours milk into like an old coffee cup and serves it to her and Kelly goes to drink it. There's debate. Levi and I think that she drank the milk. <laughs> she says she didn't drink the milk. The end result is that when Kelly looked at the cup before or after she drank it, she saw feces floating in it. Here's not why I'm telling you that story. That was bonus. <laughs> when our kids are little, they love to make us breakfast in bed. And, and now our kids are like teenagers or almost teenagers. And as we tell those stories, they get so embarrassed. They're like, oh, I, I don't know. How to, I didn't know how to make you breakfast. And I made a mess. Why did you let me do that? You know, it, it, it seems so silly to let me make you breakfast in bed. Here's what they don't know that. One day, our teenagers will be adults, and they're going to have children of their own, and those children are going to make them breakfast in bed, and they'll know what we know, which is those were some of our favorite breakfasts. It wasn't Michelin rated. It was messy. But what made it beautiful and good is they did it because they adored us, because they loved us, because they wanted to serve us. If what we do before the Lord is not an adoration of our love for our Heavenly Father, then it is simply still self-serving. 
if we do it because we want that get out of jail free card. Do you see the difference is, is the why? The Lord cares deeply about what motivates our heart. That's where it all starts. Before we get to the Ten Commandments, we've got, we've got Genesis chapter 3, which is all about heart motivation. Do you see that? Eating of the tree of good and evil takes authority to do what is good in their own eyes. And from that point forward, everything falls apart. The Tower of Babel, the great deluge known as uh, the flood, rape, slavery, false idols, brothers killing each other. All of it starts with now the serpent. And it crescendos. We have a crescendo too. It crescendos with doing right in our own eyes. And the highest point in the scriptures of doing right in our own eyes, what is the crescendo of our creation? It's killing God. And that's what happened in the New Testament. That mankind would do right in their own eyes to the point that they would take that God who's saying this beautiful order into being and that they would put him on a cross. So <laughs> where is our hope in Genesis 3? Is this, it's that while the covenant of obedience did not work, we now live in a covenant of grace. The number one truth, the only truth here is that Jesus saves. You see, in this covenant obedience of obedience, Adam was our representation. But thankfully, that covenant is done with. Adam had this struggle in a garden over a tree. God says, obey me and live. And Adam disobeys him and is crushed. But you know, Jesus also struggled in the garden of Gethsemane over a tree, he who is, he who uh, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It is Jesus who sat in the Gethsemane and cried and is like, Lord, if it is within your will, take this from me. But if it is in, within your will, let me do this well. God says to Jesus, God said to Adam, if you obey, you will live. God says to Jesus, if you obey, you will be crushed, but they will live. You see, Jesus displayed the obedience that Adam didn't. Why? So that we can go from a covenant of obedience that will destroy us into a covenant of grace. The obedience has been taken care of, and we get to live freely in the grace that God offers us through his son, Jesus Christ. The covenant of grace is not dependent on what you do, but on what Christ has done for you. And this reverses all these lies. How do we know God is good? He who did not spare his only son, how will he not also give you all things? How do we know that our identity is Christ? It is in Christ. It's simply put that it's not just that we are forgiven. We're not just like pardoned sinners. We are adopted into God's kingdom called sons and daughters, treated once as sinners, but now treated the way Jesus deserves to be treated. 
And finally, we don't have to save ourselves. This means we get to stop running, stop blaming, stop saying like, oh, it, it's my past, it's my heredity, it's my circumstances, it's my spouse, it's my job, it's my neighbor. No, man, it's me. Like I am the problem. I am naked and ashamed. I need grace. We get to look to the cross and we see Jesus saying, it is finished. And let me just invite you now to move from from a covenant of obedience, of trying to get it done yourself, trying to play your own God, trying trying to justify your own self, and instead move into this covenant of grace, resting in the finished work of Jesus. Man, you are naked in your sin, but because of the way you've been clothed through the blood of Christ, you no longer have a reason to be ashamed. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.